Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, I'm Nicholas Gordon, host of the Asian Review of Books podcast done in collaboration with the New Books Network. In this podcast, we interview fiction and nonfiction authors working in, around, and about the Asia-Pacific region. Regnum Chine, the printed Western maps of China to 1735, does something that no one has ever done before. Collect just about every map of China printed in Europe from 1584 up until Jean-Baptiste Danville's landmark map of 1735. Marco Capoeira, along with his fellow researchers, worked tirelessly to collect and track down these many different documents and tell the stories behind each one. Quote, Stories marked by scholarly breakthroughs, obsession, missionary zeal, commercial sagacity, and greed. End quote. Marco is the Digital Scholarship and Archives Manager at the Li Shaoqi Library at the Hong Kong University of Science and Technology. Today, the two of us talk about this project, what it says about how Europe's understood China and his favorite maps in the collection. So, Marco, thank you for coming on the show today to talk about your book. Um, so this book collects, I think, over 120 different maps of China. Um, but, like, why focus on maps? Why focus on these historical documents um, and what they tell us about history and how people understood the world? Well, it, it starts really with uh, with the job I have. I'm, I'm the curator of a map collection. Um, the HKUSC in Hong Kong has the largest map collection on Western printed maps of China. But I don't come to this job just by by chance. I mean, my background is in history. Um, and then I studied Chinese history and classical Chinese. And a bit by chance, I got involved in working with this map collection. The basic feature of this map collection is that, um, well, basically in East Asia, there is no major map collection of Western Western maps of China. Ancient, by ancient, I mean 1500 to 1700. Um, so this is kind of a given. It, to me, the fact that these documents are interesting, they are visually extremely attractive, is a given. And because my background is in history and I like to approach students, 
and visitors, both in lessons and, and in tours, gallery tours, exhibition. Um, for me, this is really a way to communicate how history can be extremely vivid. Uh, it is quite easy to, to draw people with these maps and to show them how China looked like to Westerners 500 years ago. And when people see them and they see, oh, really, they are the original. Many people cannot believe that we show them real items from 500, 400 years ago. And they, they kind of creates a, a relationship to the item and you want to go there and, and just look and explore them. So for me, this is really a way to make people more aware of history and more curious about history. So how does this project actually come about? I mean, I know this, this book is the end result um, of a big project that you and your colleagues did, but what actually was this project? Yeah, this project now that is basically finished now uh, with the publication of the book, but it's going on a bit because we are opening a large-scale map exhibition in uh, in HKUSD in the library in this fall, in September, and it will go on for 10 months. And it will feature the maps that you see in the book, and it will feature maps from our collection, uh, and it will feature maps of China, both Western, Chinese, and Japanese. So... It started basically five, six years ago, and now that I can see it, and it's really like a quite a big adventure. I didn't didn't anticipate at the time how much of my time and energy it would take. Um, it came from the fact that um, when I started working with the library, I just was working part time on a small project. Um, I was teaching in USD a course in history, and the library was looking for someone to write some simple notes on the web about some of the maps of the collection. It was a very small job. Then the person in charge of the collection uh, went to another university. I took over the collection and I still thought that I would do something on the maps, but it was not my only duty. I'm also in charge of the archive. I thought, okay, I do archive most of the time, just maps part of the time. We bought this great collection almost 30 years ago, but now when I started working six years ago, there was no budget anymore to buy new maps. And then everything changed. Everything changed because um, we got a donor that had previously simply paid for digitizing the maps. Um, and the other collection we have that is classics in the history of science, Galileo, Newton, first edition, and so on. And this donor gave us pretty generous donation to to subsidize digitizing these items and then came back uh, when I had just started being the head of the unit and said, do you have another project? And to me, my background in history is history of China. So I thought, what can I do with this map that goes beyond digitize them and just writing simple things? And I saw that basically there was no book about Western maps of China at all. Uh, neither small nor large, um, neither in Western languages or in Chinese. Just something written about some famous map, nothing about the whole thing. Uh, and so I proposed this as a project. Um, I got in touch with the main historians of cartography there in Amsterdam, because most of these old maps were printed in the Netherlands in 1500, 1600. So the best scholars are in Amsterdam. I was 
on a summer holiday in um, in the Netherlands, and I decided to stop by the University of Amsterdam, write them an email, and ask them to meet me and tell me if someone else was doing this. Is was there anyone else working on this project? So me, no. And they had a series that published books on uh, maps of countries seen basically through history uh, with the same model that my book basically was published in that series. And I asked them, would you be interested in having a book on China in your series? I said, yes, would be very interested. And basically they trained me. Uh, I went there for two summers uh, once the funds were approved uh, and they, they taught me everything about how to write about ancient maps because it's not that easy. I mean, if you look at the book, you will see uh, many things are stories and uh, who got the map and uh, kind of there is an adventurous part. Another part is very technical. You look at the map, you measure the map, you make a technical judgment about the fact if the map is has mm, changed over time, it has been modified, how similar it is or different from other maps. They taught me everything. They taught me everything and basically I almost couldn't believe at the beginning that I would be able to fulfill all the requirements that they had. I thought the book would be a bit shorter or it would take shortcuts. In the end, in five years, we, we did it. So I, I want to I wanna point to something you mentioned, which is that um, Amsterdam is the home for a lot of these maps. I think kind of the, the Netherlands, I expect, was kind of one of the, the hubs for map making. And I want to ask it of who were the sorts of people? Well, first, who were the people making these maps, and who were the people that were using these maps? Like, I guess who was who was the manufacturer? Use a bad word for it. A manufacturer, and who was the customer? Yeah. Well, basically, maps, and I emphasize this: it's our collection, the the, the collection that I started with is Western printed maps of China. So they are printed items. And that means they are basically, it's an early form of mass manufacturing and it requires capitals and it requires, yeah, production, very sophisticated production, copper plates and people that can do engraving on copper plates. It requires big distribution um, and reaching to a large market. And the Netherlands from late 1500 to early 1700, which is the time I cover in my book, was by far the most important producer of maps. I mean, they and, and books. I mean, they, they were producing more maps because they were in fact producing more books. They they were basically were producing more than fifty percent of all books printed in Europe at the time, and more than fifty percent of the maps printed at the time. So they would, because of that, or the fact that their products were uh, spread all over Europe, not just in the Netherlands. They would not just print these maps in Dutch. They mostly would print them in Latin, which is what the commonly understood language in Europe at the time. So they would print them for their market, but especially for export. And who would want to use them? Well, it's more like who want to read them? Because the maps had a map at the front, and always at the back there would be text, text about the country that is depicted in the map. And the approach that people had to these maps is really like now you would have a, like, I don't know, an encyclopedia or a Wikipedia entry. You have the image and then you read the text. And it was for general curiosity. With these maps, you could not go to China from Europe. Okay, You could not 
find your way on the coast. You would not be able to know if it was easier to go near the coast of Guangdong or how to reach Shandong. No way. Uh, they would give you a general image of the country. So they were for cultural curiosity. Okay. So I know I know the book's mostly about, about Western maps of China, but there's one chapter that focuses on Chinese maps of China. Uh, what were the differences between, I guess, the maps of China being created by, by Chinese cartographers? How are they different? Well, it, the market for maps in Europe was basically uh, shaped by the fact that the main thing that would print in the, in the Netherlands that, that made them leaders were atlases. They created the genre of atlases. That means for each country, there would be a map, every country in the world. Now, China was a very, very special country from that point of view, because when in these atlases you see a map of India, uh, a map of America, a map of Africa. They were maps that were basically completely created by Western cartographers. There was a Western exploration uh, that led them basically to explore the coast. Generally, the coasts were known better than the interior, but it all came from Western sources, going to the place, acquiring information, but the maps were, from the beginning to the end, Western maps. Even in the case of uh, Indian Ocean, uh, Middle Eastern countries, they had their tradition of cartography, but the maps that got printed in the West actually were uh, created in the West because at most they could find a few manuscript maps in, in foreign languages, but China was different. They started printing maps much earlier than the European, the Song Dynasty in 1100. And when the Europeans started arriving in China, uh, I mean, they came in waves. Okay, Marco Polo went to China, but didn't bring back maps. The time that we are looking at had Portuguese arriving in Macau. The Jesuits start learning some Chinese. Uh, they want to know about China, and they just go to bookshops in, in the cities they have access to, and they buy atlases, printed atlases of China, and they transform them. They transform these maps into Western maps. So... There is basically no Western map of China in print that is not based on a Chinese map. So the Chinese maps are always at the source. And some are very accurate. Some are uh, focused more on the political system. Some are focused on the, the coast and the rivers. Um, they don't have the system, the European system of longitude and latitude. So they would give you sometimes a grid for uniform distance. They would just tell you from A to B is two days walking. Um, and the Westerners had to use these Chinese maps and convert them into the system of longitude and latitude, stretch them and transform it into Western cartography. But always at the beginning, there is a Chinese map, which is completely unique. It's connected to the fact that there were printed maps in China and there were not printed maps in any other country the European right. Um, you mentioned in your answer that there were kind of waves of, um, I guess, waves of explorers, or maybe better say waves of kind of information and knowledge being transmitted from China um, to Europe. Um, like I started with Marco Polo, but then through other explorers and missionaries and so on. Um, I guess, and that translates into kind of the creation of new maps as well. But when you talk about some of the events in China that triggered kind of, let's say, a new wave of new maps in Europe. Yeah, basically when I 
when I started working on this book, initially I thought I would concentrate on the big history and then give just a simple description of each man. Then the book became mostly 120 stories about 120 men. And then I wrote a short introduction trying to get some general principle. And one of the main principles is this waves, okay? The fact that I cover maps from 1584, the first map of China printed in the West, to 1735, almost 150 years. I cover 120 maps, almost a map per year, but they don't go one per year. There are three, four years when you have 30 of them and they are very new. And then you're just years where there is just repetition and, and copy. Um, I talk about three waves. Now, only one is connected to events in China. Uh, the other two are actually connected to the way that Europeans were dealing with China. So to, to be concrete, the first wave, basically when we start getting maps of China, um, it's connected to the fact that in the first map in 1584, okay, so towards the end of 1500, the, there was no big change in China at the time. It was the Ming Dynasty, relative stability. Uh, there was a bit more interaction with the West, but just growing in, in a stable way. Uh, what changed is that for 60 years, Portuguese had been in that region and they were not allowing their manuscript maps of China to be spread over Europe. They would be controlled by the Portuguese government. There was basically a secret, a state secret, how to navigate to China. These are not printed maps. These are uh, what they had were a mix of Chinese maps and uh, a lot of what is called Portland charts. So maps so that would allow you and sea charts, maps that would allow you actually to sail, to sail on the Indian Ocean and arrive there. So the Portuguese were not allowing this information to, to be uh, diffused, especially in printing. But then in 1580, basically, uh, Portugal and Spain merge. And basically, Spain acquires uh, Portugal. They, they, they are under the same king, King Philip, uh, who gives a name to the Philippine Islands uh, that she acquired in that period. And at that point, the Portuguese are not able to control their information anymore. And so there is a flood of maps of China that the Portuguese have been sitting on and suddenly goes to print. So this is the first way. The second wave is around 60 years later, 1640. That's connected with China. So the, the Ming Dynasty falls, the Qing, the Manchu Dynasty takes over. A lot of Jesuits have to leave China because of the disorders. Uh, because really, the Jesuits are absolutely essential in all these stories. They, they are the ones that are transmitting the knowledge. They are the ones that understand Chinese. And so they can use Chinese maps, not just for general information to look at the outline, but they can read them. Chinese maps have a lot of text, a lot of text about provinces, administration, history. If you don't read Chinese, you can just scratch the surface. So this Jesuit had to leave China because of the disorders. They went back to Europe. They were discussing with the Pope, should we uh, shift our allegiance to, to the Qing dynasty? There was still a part of the Ming dynasty fighting in the south. Some were even converted to Catholicism. Should we try to do that, to, to go with the Ming? For 10, 15 years, there was this long debate and these people moving. These people moving brought new maps and they also had a lot of time. Most of the time, the missionaries are very busy. They, they cannot just do cartography. They do a bit of cartography to to show back home what what the country they're living in is about. 
they are also doing some cartography like Matteo Ricci, the most important Jesuit, to show to the Chinese that there is more knowledge that the Jesuit can offer to to China and to the elites. Matteo Ricci makes a map of the world where America is finally shown to to show to the Chinese elite that the Jesuits should be taken seriously as scholars. But mostly these people don't have a lot of time when they are doing missionary work. But when they're back in Europe, they have a lot, a lot of time. They, they Just the travel is one year and a half. This year and a half is spent with an atlas and just in, in the case of a very famous cartographer, Martino Martini. And she spent this long time with a Chinese atlas and translated it into, into Latin. And so this is the second wave. The third wave is towards the end of my book, around 1730. And that's a collaboration. It's not only Chinese, not only Western. It's um, connected to the fact that the new dynasty, the Manchu dynasty, they wanted to do a survey of the country and to draw maps out of that survey. Because before that time, maps were not based on modern style surveys, measuring with ropes or chain and big teams of people going around they were just based on piecemeal uh, accumulation of local information. But this survey is gigantic. It's the largest survey ever made in a country at that time in the world in 1700. And the Jesuit served as foreign expert. They had much expertise about, especially the French Jesuit, they were doing a survey um, in France at the time. They served as expert. So they published in Chinese maps out of this survey. And these maps don't have a lot of circulation because even if they are printed, in this case, the, the Chinese high official and the court prefer to sit on them, not to make them too public for a while. But the Jesuit translate them into French, send them back to Europe and make it a big propaganda event uh, so that they are kind of the gatekeeper of knowledge about China. The Jesuits are really, in my book, most of the stories about Chinese maps, one way or another, are related to the Jesuits. Um, you know, another thing that kind of that kind of comes through um, in your book is 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 when the idea of China, like, I guess, as China, uh, when that when that really starts to take hold in the European imagination. You know, um, you note know that that. It was kind of named under a bunch of different names initially. Um, and they maps were kind of focused on either Macau or maybe Japan. But kind of, when does the idea of China kind of as its own place really start to um, emerge in the European imagination as shown through these maps? Mm -hmm. Yeah, the, the book has two parts. So the, the largest part is the story of each single map. Uh, and there is a, a, another part that is an introduction where I wrote one chapter and other scholars wrote chapters about everything before that map, everything before 58. So the first map that really gives the name China to the country is the one, the number one in my book, this 1580. Before that, the knowledge goes back mostly to Marco Polo. Marco Polo went to China around 1300. For more than 200 years, he was the source, and he didn't know China as one country. He went to China when China was under the Mongol Empire, and the Mongol Empire administered China into different zones. Northern China 
Katai, that was the name that Marco Polo gave, and that South China, Manji, that, at least the name that Marco Polo gave. They were very different. Uh, the Manji, Southern China, was taken, conquered much later than the northern part, and it was uh, under the Southern Song originally. So Marco Polo, there are so many books about Marco Polo went to China, didn't go to China, but Mar the certain thing is that Marco Polo didn't think in terms of one China. For him, they were really two different countries. The, the north was more connected with Mongols, the steppes, the south more connected to, to maritime trade. Simply there was not the knowledge that, because these people didn't speak Chinese, okay? The, even Marco Polo would speak Persian or Mongolian. So they couldn't even hear that the language was the same language, which mostly it was with, with local variation. So it's only with this... Uh, when the Portuguese arrive in Macau uh, around 1550 uh, and they start getting much more information and the Jesuits also start learning Chinese and they understand that there is this immense empire to the north and it's one country. And at that time is Ming. So in fact, they often call China, not China at the beginning, but they call it Daming or Taming or something, a variation of Ming. But they understand it's one, but they still cannot enter it. Uh, because the Jesuits were just blocked and the Portuguese were blocked in Macau. It was not free access. And then soon around the time when this free map, that basically is map one of my book, 1584, starts, then they can start not only trading along the coast and being in Macau, but really travel across the country. And it's very clear, it's one country. It's one country. And then they go back to the fact that that country was called Sina by the Latin was called Qin by, um, by the Arabs uh, and in India. And they just settled on this name, China, China. And there is no doubt anymore that it's just one country. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and... What do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. So we've talked for like 20 minutes now, and we haven't actually talked about some of the actual maps in the collection. Um, and I know asking this question is a bit like asking you to choose your your favorite child, but um, what are some of your, like, what is maybe one or two of your favorite maps in this collection? And um, what are the stories behind behind that, behind these maps? Well, uh, probably uh, two of the earliest. Also, because when I talk about maps, I, I generally really start showing them. And then I explore them with, with the visitors. I explore them and just unpack them because these maps, now these maps are, um, were printed mostly in atlases. They are the equivalent of what 
now would be an A3 format, okay? They, they are just roughly all of that size. So they are large enough, but not super large, you know, something you would stick on a wall, it's just in front of you, but they are packed with visual information. Uh, the first, it is really the one that opens the book, the 1584, is by uh, a cartographer that was active in Antwerp, that at the time was basically low countries, there was not, not yet the difference between uh, the Netherlands and Belgium, now it's Belgium. Antwerp was the largest uh, port in, in Europe and the largest printing place in the Europe, and Ortels or Ortelius, they would all have a name in in Dutch and, and in Latinized names. So generally, people who do maps would call, would use the Latin name. So Ortelius, this Ortelius map of China, the first. She created the genre of atlases. So she, she really wanted a map of China for a long time. He was publishing his atlas year after year. He couldn't get a map of China. Finally, in 1584, she gets a map of China. In a very complicated way, he gets it. The source was always Portugal, but even at the time when Portugal was already under, under Spain, still the Portuguese didn't want to get maps out and they had a way to prevent it. And so he had to pay basically a spy to get a copy of a Chinese maps and finally print it. And then she prints it. And in that maps, she puts, well, for example, Macau, you can find Macau. She puts actually all the main provinces of China in a kind of Portuguese transcription. And then she puts um, a lot of um, strange things that supposedly were existing in China and now we know don't exist, like wind carts. So they're basically carts that are propelled by a sail um, and supposedly can, can go super fast uh, uh, across the ground. Uh, you find them in maps of China of the first 20, 30 years, always there. And you find elephants, you find animals, all at the borders. Um, you also find that basically China is very, very recognizable, but everything else is closed. It's closed not only by the Great Wall, but it's shown as a fortress. It's closed by a long line of mountains. And basically just looking at that map, and being able to recognize the names that people can still recognize if they know Chinese. And at the same time, to see the things that are so bizarre, uh, there is no Korea, it is not, should be there, but it's not shown because people didn't know. Japan is out of shape. Uh, Shandong Peninsula is unrecognizable. At the same time, the country is definitely there. Um, so it's really like the, the beginning. The, the other map that is really interesting for me is a map that we only have in in UST and, and in another copy in, in the Jesuit archives because something about these maps is that they are printed. So a map like the one I told you before about Ortelius, 1584, more than 400 years, but more than a thousand copies were printed. Actually, many thousands of copies were printed. So is rare, special, you know, with the name of my unit is rare and special collection. It's rare, it's special, it's valuable. But there are many, many copies. There are many copies around the world. Um, but the map that is a favorite for me is uh, connected to a Jesuit named Michele Ruggeri. It was printed in Rome. And it exists only one copy that we have here and one copy at the Jesuit archives in Rome. And she made it basically not to be published in an atlas, not to be 
uh, sold across Europe. Uh, it, both maps are in Latin, so they are maps that are recognizable to every culture European. Uh, but the purpose of the Ortelius map that I described before is to be sold, is just to be commercially attractive. That's why there are so many copies there still around. This one was basically for the Pope and the King of Spain, and it had much more accurate information about China. The shape of the country is much more recognizable. Korea and Japan are clear. There is also the Philippines and Southeast Asia. And not only this, um, Macau is there, uh, but also uh, the first Jesuit church is there uh, in a place called Jiaoqing. And that Jesuit church, this map is dated around 1590. The church had been created only five years earlier. Uh, so that map is also like a very updated information about China. And in the Jesuit archive, you see a report handwritten. The map is printed, but you see it inside the handwritten report where basically Michele Ruggeri, who is the first Jesuit to enter China and, and know Chinese before Matteo Ricci, he gives a report to the Pope about what the Jesuit can do to turn basically East Asia Catholic, country by country. And then she uses the map to explain what can be done. It was not like a, an aggressive strategy, it was a missionary strategy, but, but the map has information about all the provinces, how many, what is the political system in China, everything. Uh, it has the, the Great Wall, it has uh, information even about the main rivers, in a way that is very fascinating that it was created only for a very small elite and now exists only in two copies, even though it was by far the best map of China that was available in Europe. So sometimes a map can be extremely informative, valuable, but still not spread uh, across Europe like the other printed maps. So that's my favorite, this Ruggeri map of China, 1590. You know, I, I, I want to end our conversation by kind of using, I, I guess, using history to kind of understand the the present day, particularly kind of our, our present day relationship with maps. Imagine this, I think, at the very beginning where like go to a Wikipedia page and you see a map. Maps are, I know, say that they're standardized is simplistic and I know we can critique that. But, you know, everyone uses Google Maps, everyone uses Apple Maps. These maps are, I would say, mostly standardized. Um, but do you think after kind of, do you think as someone who studies maps throughout history, um, do you see the maps we use today differently? And are they perhaps not as standardized as they sometimes see? Well, I mean, maps are a way to present visual information, okay? And so I also use Google Maps all the time. I mean, in fact, the first time I went to Amsterdam to, to work uh, with a special collection and learn about cartography, I was not, it was 2018, it's recent, but at the same time, I was not yet using Google Maps all the time. Then I had a very detailed address, couldn't find it. I stopped someone on the street that just looked at the Google Map and told me, just go there. Okay. And just so it was very clear how more powerful a map is than um, any kind of verbal description. And after that, I use Google Maps all the time. At the same time, the, the main difference between Google Maps and these maps is that Google Maps looks like seamless. I mean, you can really zoom in from, uh, and that's what I do often when I teach map. I mean, you, you start from Hong Kong, then you go back to the whole world view, and then you can show Venice or, or Antwerp. And it's always apparently uh, the same map. These maps of the past are 
uh, this whole atlas, it didn't have a match. The map of China has a different China than the Asia maps. The map of the world has another different China. They're all made from different sources. So they made extremely clear how the sources are different, uh, which basically, I mean, makes you aware of the fact that in the end, there is always a specific source to know a specific territory. Now, for Google Maps, it's not that I have any kind of special advice, even though it, one of the most sensitive things in Google Maps is that when you use them to look for shops, you, you will understand that certain shops are shown and certain are not shown, not in a random way. I mean, it's a, it's a specific display that gives access to certain, to certain things and not others. Um, it's like at the time it, that I am starting 1500, 1600, 1700, maps were rare. Okay, so basically they were made beautiful and they are, because they are so packed with information, so packed also of, with art, they are really great windows in, into the past. They, they can really make you feel that you are seeing the world in a different way the ancient world. The present Google Maps, they are uh, enormously powerful um, and they seem completely natural to us when we move around with our blue dots. But in the end, again, after you've studied Maps for a long time, it's quite clear they also have their layers that most viewers are not aware of. And in fact, basically no viewers that are not technically really good can be aware of. So, well, it's really a different, a different world, but even in the map exhibition that we are presenting, what we plan to do, uh, we plan to have uh, our ancient maps, both Western and Chinese, some contemporary artistic maps, and then basically experience that allow viewers to understand that the relationship with maps is not as simple immediate as it seems. For example, a map of the world made in China as China at the center, a map of the world made in Europe as Europe at the center, a map of the world made in the US as US at the center. And actually, there are only these three models of maps of the world. But generally, until you compare them, you are not aware that how yourself as a viewer and user project into the map is really making such a big difference, but, but it is. So I think that's a good place to end our conversation with Marco Capoara, um, author of Regnum Chine, The Printed Western Maps of China to 1735. Marco, I actually have two final questions for you before we close off, which are, uh, where can people find your work? And what's next for you after this very long project? <laughs> what do you think the next project might be? Well, first of all, the book, the book was published in October last year, but as part of the big disruption of supply chains, basically became uh, uh, available again for ordering only, only basically just now in the past few weeks. Um, it, the book has been published by an academic publisher of the Netherlands named Brill. So if you know the, the title, which is Regnum Kine, or just like Caboara in China, something like that, you can Google it. Uh, you will be able to find it there or and soon on Amazon uh, when when basically Brill releases it. It should be on Amazon soon. Uh, Amazon or any other any other supply. Uh, in terms of the next uh, next project, 
Yeah, I've been asked this question many times. Now, a very easy answer would be, okay, volume two of this. Okay, this stops at 1735. So, um, but this is something for the distant future. I think this this was a all-consuming project for five years. I, I cannot go back to, to the same thing just now. I think uh, a volume, well, two two possibilities on, on which I've, I've received some some offers already from uh, from publishers. One is to write a popularizing book about Chinese history for a Western audience using Chinese maps. So history seen through maps and maps of China. So not an academic book. The book you 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 I, I just finished writing this brilliant book on on maps of China, 1584, 1735 is an academic book. You you can actually go through it because of the beautiful images and the map-by-map map stories are quite interesting, but it's basically not a book you read from beginning to end. It, it's, a, it's a reference book. The Beside the general book about China seen through maps, like history of China seen through maps in the past 800 years, the other one would be something similar, meaning more academic, similar to the one I just finished, but about Chinese maps, not about Western maps. Because my background is in classical Chinese, so I've been using a lot of Latin in the past few years. My Latin got very much better, my classical Chinese a bit worse. Now it's time for me to go back to, to Chinese. So you can follow me, Nicholas Gordon, on Twitter at Nick R. I. Gordon. That's N-I-C-K-R-I-G-O-R-D-O-N. You can go to asiareviewbooks.com to find other reviews, essays, interviews, and excerpts. Follow on Twitter at Book Reviews Asia, and you can find many more author interviews at the New Books Network at newbooksnetwork.com. We're on all of your podcast apps, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, rate us, recommend us, share us with your friends to support us interviewing those running in, around, and about Asia. Stay tuned for more news what's going up on the show. But before then, Marco, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you. 